You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You caught me out. Caught me out. I couldn't remember what podcast you're on. I couldn't which podcast I'm recording. Oil & Gas This Week podcast, episode 169. And of course, I'm here with Mark LaCour. What's going on, man? Man, we're just all so busy, but uh, this is cool. We did this is a first Friday Q and A, and if you listen to us any length of time, you've heard us talk about for the first time ever last month. We got one question, and I'm telling you, audience, thank you. This opened up the floodgates. We got so many questions in after we mentioned that. Unfortunately, we couldn't fit them all in here. We also got some reviews. So great podcast, great pod. Listen to me, I'm stumbling over the word podcast too, Jake. <laughs> Great podcast to keep up to date on the oil and gas industry. This is a wonderful way to keep up with the industry news and stay up to date. I live on the west side of Houston and listen to the show during my long commute to work and back. Enjoy listening to your perspective and always look forward to new episodes and latest happenings. And that was from Addy Mata One from USA. And if you don't know about Houston traffic, literally this person's commute from one end of Houston to the other in the morning at rush hour could literally be an hour and a half, maybe even two hours. So I guess Jake is another reason we need to step our game up a little bit. That's exactly or, why I'm moving in the city. Yeah, or Addy Maya, you listen and need to listen to other podcasts, including Jake and Colin's All and Gas Startup Podcast. That might fill in that extra time. Yeah, so if your commute's that long and you really want to hear me talk some more, go listen to that. <laughs> and we got a bunch of, we got six of them. So if you get tired of Jake, there's a, we have other great talent out there as well. But Jake, it's first Friday Q&A. Let's get into questions. All right, so we got a question from Dylan, who's kind of anonymous other than the name. They write, I know someone in charge of P&A on a very small asset group in the Asia Pacific. He has over 900 wells that need P&A, but it always gets pushed back due to industry climate. Worldwide, the amount of wells that need P&A would be astronomical, and I assume they've had the same problem regarding them being pushed back. My question is eventually, could this be part of the industry that is due for a huge boom for jobs? And the secondary question is that shell wells have a majority of the production in the first two years. So how many years on average until a shell well is not economical and needs abandoning? The amount of wells in the Permian alone that would need abandoning at some point is huge. Yeah. So let's start with the first part. P&A, if you don't know, is, is basically plug and abandon. It's a process to take that well from production to a way to shut it down safely, either forever or till somewhere in the future where new technologies and new process allow you to go back and take that plug well and, and put it back in productions. So so I agree with you, uh, Dylan, which is funny. Don't say it, what his email address is, but notice Jake, his email address doesn't match with his name. <laughs> <laughs> so if y'all, and we try really hard when you want to be anonymous to not accidentally give you away, but if you really want to be anonymous, when you type in your email address, just type in, you know, anonymous.anonymous at gmail.com or something. So there's no way you can accidentally stumble across your name, but this is part of, of decommissioning and, and P&A is done both offshore and, and onshore. I think there's an enormous, I mean, enormous economic potential in decommissioning in the North Sea for a bunch of reasons, one of which is that money by law has already sitting there to, to bring those wells down. And if you can figure out a way to do it a little bit cheaper, a little bit faster, you're sitting on literally billions of dollars of profiting. But I'll tell you this much, on land too, uh, P&A is enormous. And different parts of the world have different rules. And even here in the US, different states have different rules, right? So in order for this to be a, a, an industry boom, which I do think the potential is there. We need some standardization in exactly what is P&A, when you have to do it, and how do you measure whether it's been done correctly. And I think as a country, state by state, we're kind of moving there. The states that actually produce, Texas has some really what I consider fair P&A rules. They're not too extreme on one end, not extreme on the other. Um, unfortunately, our, our brothers and sisters in the oil patch in California have it the opposite way. The amount of legislation and rules that are placed without when they plug and abandon well is just ridiculous. You know, so, but I do think there's a, a lot of 
future profitability built in here in ways that maybe nobody's even thought of before. You know, what if you, when you go to plug a well, instead of just plugging it and walk away from it, you have a way to put sensors in that well. So even though the well's not in operation, you can look at the changes that's going on in the reservoir and you can compare that new, to new technologies. So you can know ahead of time, if you have a field of, you know, say 500 wells that are plugged, that they're actually now economically viable. I mean, there's something I just made up in my head that we have the technology now to actually do, right? So you can literally set up this huge broker market of plugged wells based upon changes in technology. So I think there's a lot of potential here and also on the true decommissioning side as well. So good question. And then the second part was the amount of wells in a permanent loan would need to be abandoned at some point is huge. It's about the decline curve. So yes, but Jake and I have both seen, and anybody that follows our industry have both seen, in the last five years, the decline rate of those wells is not as steep as it used to be based upon different ways of completing the wells, based upon figuring out if you're better off in the pay zone you know if you if you have a, a, a better completion if yeah. you have a better stems well, refracts yeah a lot refracts. of things that kind of push this back yeah so so there's a need for it and I, but i think that extending the decline curve of of the fracked wells in North America is a huge market. I think we're in the very beginning of the first inning of that. And I think in the next, I don't mean decades, I mean the next five years, you can see enormous strides made in keeping those wells productive for much longer. You got to remember, this is all kind of new to us. Same way with conventional reservoirs. When conventional reservoirs were first drilled, they had a steep decline curve. Not anymore. You know, their decline curve is measured in, in decades or centuries sometimes. So I think the same thing will happen with the unconventionals. Yep. I agree 100%. It's something to take into consideration whenever you're buying some wells that are in the life to look at the liability of P&A and what is the cost of that and kind of factor that into your economics. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that every well is eventually going to need. But I think it's a lot of things that are kind of pushing it back, especially with the development of new technology. Next question is from Matthew, who's an NWD engineer at Halliburton. He writes, I recently had an opportunity to attend a flaring workshop hosted by Shell going into issues facing the industry. Shell claims they reduced 80% of flaring and are pushing other industry leaders to pursue that route. Where do you see flaring going into the future? Yeah, and if you don't know what MWD stands, measurement while drilling. So, Matthew, you're out there doing some like really cool stuff because not that long ago it was a bunch of best guesses. Now you're seeing data in real time from that sensor behind the wellhead. That's really, really cool. So, Shell claims they reduce 8% of the flaring and they push other industry leaders to pursue that route. I'm sure that number is true. I would also suspect that that number, the data to get that number was cherry picked a little bit. Nothing against my buddies at Shell. You know, places in the country where they won't let you flare, you know, if you pull that data set, from those wells that can make this flaring reduction look enormous versus parts of the world where they don't really care or parts of the U.S. really don't care. But but overall, there's a couple things going on. Number one is we take a black eye in public. Whether people understand what's happening when they see that flare at night or not, it doesn't matter. It looks bad to our industry. It looks like we're polluting the environment. The other thing is a lot of states have figured out that if you tax that gas at the wellhead, instead of taxing that gas when it goes into the system, that it forces operators not to flare the gas because they're going to pay money for the gas where they flare to put it in the system. There's been a bunch of new technologies just literally in the last two years around how to pull some of the harmful stuff out of that well gas. So you can either use it to run gensets or put it back in the systems. I mean, like really cool non-moving part catalytic type stuff type of chemistry, molecular chemistry that's real, that you know, rubber hits the road. It's not academia. I've seen it actually in the Permian. So as a whole, I think we're getting further and further away from flaring. And, and honestly, we really should. You know, the bottom line is when you flare, you're doing it for the bigger economic benefits of, of whatever else you're producing, typically liquids like crude oil. The truth is you're, you're burning hydrocarbons that, that 
can be used in some shape or form, you know, somewhere else. So, and part of that is the adoption of technology. Part of that is a state regis- legislation. And part of it is also the operators changing the way they do business. If you look at pictures, and I spoke about the Permian, if you look at pictures of Permian, say, three years ago, four years ago versus now, I mean, there's still a lot of flaring going, but it's as enormous to change. Same way in North Dakota. So I, I think eventually we'll get to the point where there's little or no flaring whatsoever at Wells. And, and I think as an industry, we need to go there. Yep. I'd and I will say before we change, know much about flaring. <laughs> before we sh- go into the next question, I will say this much: what I just talked about is flaring out when you're going into production, and actually they flare when they're complete too. There's another thing that's also called flaring in the industry. It's in downstream, and that's the petrochemical refiners, ethylene crackers, fuel refiners, blah blah blah. They flare for a different reason. So they have systems set up where if there is going to be an escape of something that's harmful to the environment, they intentionally route it through the system to a very high temperature flame and a very high stack. That breaks the harmful molecules down. So when you see that flare, that's basically taking an emergency situation, an emergency dump that normally they just would have dumped that stuff in the air instead of letting it blow up and kill a bunch of people. And they're, they're breaking it down using high temperatures. That's a different type of flare. And that type of flare, and there's a lot of technology that's in it. That type of flare needs to continue to happen because it protects the local population and the people working in the refinery and the environment. So two different things. But the flaring where, where we're, you're seeing a lot in these unconventional shell plays, that's, I think, disappearing. And, and I think it, it needs to disappear eventually. All right. Next question is from an anonymous San Francisco-based venture capitalist. It's a very reputable firm. That's all I'll say. He writes, you mentioned various attempts that activists use to indirectly halt the oil industry from blocking pipelines to regulating water used to probably many other things. Is there an identifiable playbook that activists are running with that people outside the industry don't understand? That's the first question. So let's start there. So actually, believe it or not, this is kind of sad that there's so many people that don't like us. There's actually not just one playbook, Jake. There's a whole bunch of playbooks out there. It's, I mean, it's really sad that, that we don't just have one group of people that don't like us. We've got multiple people groups that don't like us. And, and you know, if you're listening to this and you're, you're not pro oil and gas, it, it's fine. I, you know, I, I respect your opinion. But yes, there is a bunch of anti oil and gas playbooks out there from everything from water use to fracking to uh, local communities to pipelines. If, if you Google anti-oil and gas playbook, you'll see, it's just sad to say, you won't see 10 or 20. You see 50 or 60 of them up there. There's there's even anti-oil and gas playbooks in different languages just in case you need help in you know, French or Russian or something. Let's, let's talk about so, the heart of the issue. I mean, I think it's, we talked about this when we were at Noble about a year ago. I think it comes down to misinformation. I think it comes down to, I think, a lack of understanding. I think most of these people are extremely emotional. <laughs> I mean, this is, you're not going to be an activist and not be emotional about something because you, you assume that an industry is, you know, killing the world or whatever it may be. But at the same time, you've got to look at like, you can't have modern civilization without the oil and gas industry. And you have to look at these people's lives and they are not willing to give up everything that is a byproduct of hydrocarbons. No, it, it really boils down to they're trying to stop production. And, and, and I'm going to back up to what I think these people th- believe in. But you never see any of them want to stop consumption. You never see a single one of them say, hey, I want to get rid of my line on a polo shirts right over whatever. But so the people that don't like our industry, the majority of them, their hearts are in the right place. They think they're helping the planet and, and they're wrong. 
as an industry, we need to own that. That is totally the oil and gas industry's fault. For the last 70 years, when anybody says something that is wrong, either intentionally or because they're misinformed, we don't stop and correct them. And I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking emotions or opinion. I'm talking about facts. And that's as an industry, we need to change it. And Jake, that's what you and I do on this podcast and on other, our other podcasts is what we're continuing to do is we're helping spread the truth about our industry. So Unfortunately, inside this very large group of people who are misinformed, there's a very small group of people that feed them a lot of misinformation, and they're doing it because they make a profit off of it. They're doing it for dollars, right? If you're in the world of ethylene production for renewable fuels, you want the laws and the people's opinion to support that in the U.S. And quite frankly, it's it's silly here in the U.S. We don't need it. It costs us money. It's not good for car engines. And yes, it worked great in Brazil, but the difference in Brazil is they didn't have to malt the corn. There's an extra step that we have to do here. If you look at a map at all the E85 vehicles there on the east and west coast where the people buy them thinking they're helping the environment, but they can't buy E85 fuel because E85 fuel is only in the center of the country. So it's just some of it gets ridiculous. But like I said, everybody, most people's hearts are in the right place. As an industry, we need to own the fact that we don't do a good, good job of educating the people. I think we hit the negative trough of public perception last year. You know, Jake, you and I spoke about uh, Noble Energy. They they did a good job with their employees in Colorado, which, by the way, people in Colorado, it's it's getting ready to happen again. Don't think just because you you squash this down, it's not going to happen again. Same thing's going on in California. Unfortunately, same thing's going to several states where the people who hearts in the right place are trying to stop fossil fuel development. And even that word fossil fuel, Jake, I hate because you know what? Nobody knows. Hydrocarbons are still being made. That same yeah. process in the Jurassic and Pleistocene area is going on in the Gulf of Mexico right now. Not at the same degree, but it's the same process. It, we, it's not fossil fuels. All Hydrocarbons are natural fuels. Hydrocarbons are the most organic fuel on the planet. Uh, it's made by nature, for nature. We pull it out Mother Earth. I mean, you don't get any more natural than that. But anyway, we need to own the fact that that the reason that people don't like us is we've done a hard job, bad job of managing expectations. You know, one of the things that when I talk to young people that nobody thinks about is space travel. And, you know, we've talked about on the show before that you're not, you will have zero space travel without hydrocarbons. There's just not another fuel with enough energy density to get us off the planet, nor is there another product that you can actually make foldable, bendable spacesuits that hold in oxygen, hold out heat and radiation. That's all hydrocarbons. So the future is, is going to need hydrocarbons. But we get back to the, the question when they actually ask, our anonymous actually ask how much of these type of rules actually cut down a potential production investment to date, it's affecting companies willing to invest. It's also affecting companies that hold shares of these companies in their investment accounts, in their pension funds, right? And it's all public perception. You know, if you think about the, if you're old enough to remember the Betamax VCR battle, beta was actually a better technology, but VCR, I'm sorry, VHS actually won the battle because of public opinion. We got to be real careful that the same sort of stuff doesn't happen to us. But I have, I've actually seen, I mean, you look at the pipeline companies now, they are now having to route pipelines, not in the most direct efficient manner, but in a way that misses political hotspots, which adds a ton of cost. Now the, the venture capital groups that might want to invest this pipeline is going, you've upped your cost by 40 or 50%. I don't know if this is a good investment for my capital, right? So it is definitely affecting that. And, and I think that will continue to grow. Now, the flip side of that is if you're a savvy investor and you get a hold of some formation that people don't know about yet that has is easy to tap into as hydrocarbons, the return on your investment is ginormous. You know, so so the other side of that is if you understand the risk and you're investing, you can actually use a lot of this stuff to help cherry pick the really high return investments. And then the last part of this question is where do you see the political risk coming from? Is it more than there's risk that some harsh regulation could be applied at the federal level? Absolutely. If we let the EPA step in and start regulating things like water, we're we're in trouble. Now with our current administration I hate to laugh. Our current administration. The biggest risk is a tweet. 
<laughs> yeah, our current administration has pulled all the teeth from the EPA, which which I've been saying for 10 years we need to do. But it doesn't mean that some administration in the future will do the opposite and allow them to control things like produce water, the way we dispose of produce water, how much fresh water we use. And we just have to make sure that nobody gets in front of us on that, that we as an industry, we own that and help explain what's really going on. You know, a couple of stats that nobody ever talks about. Regardless of what you believe about fracking contaminate groundwater, there's never been a single proven case. 2016, there was over 600 proven cases of agriculture contaminate groundwater. So if you really, really want to worry about contaminate groundwater, go look at agriculture. Don't look at us. We, we do a pretty damn good job. You know, the same thing happens with pipelines. People love to shut down pipelines. Look at how many incidents a pipeline has versus how much work it actually does. And then look at how many of those incidents were not cleaned up by our industry to the point where the ground is better than it was before. It's zero. We, we do a really good job of making sure stuff doesn't happen when you let us control it because we know how to con- use hydrocarbons effectively. And when a mistake does happen, we're a bunch of engineers that know how to fix stuff. We come back and restore the environment better than it was before. So, you know, the government regulations, we just need to stay on top of. Our current administration is, has done a great job. You know, what the next current administration is going to do, I don't know. And that's actually the risk there. And then I thought it was cool, JK, invite us to have a drink next time we're in San Francisco. So next time we're in San Francisco, anonymous <laughs> guy, we will look you up and definitely, because I'd love to pick your brain some more about this. I'll be there in a few weeks. I'm actually planning on hopefully Lincoln up with them. So cool. Looking forward to it. All right. Next question is from uh, Danny Atkins, who's a a recent graduate from University of Texas Hildebrand School of Petroleum Engineering. It's pretty long-winded, but I think it's important context before we get to the question. So I'm just going to read everything that he wrote. He wrote, hey guys, love the show. I've been listening to the show for about a month or two now and was wondering if you had any tips for a recent petroleum engineering graduate student who's on the job hunt. I finished the last of my courses in January, traveled a bit, and I've been in Houston searching for about a month now. I have solid work experience, spending a summer as a drilling floor hand in Oklahoma and two summers in Midland for a mid-sized service company and then a small EMP. However, my GPA could have been better. Hey, I'm right there with you, man. I think my GPA was like 1.6 <laughs> out of high school. I sent out dozens of applications to all kinds of engineering positions in the field for EMPs and service companies, as well as analyst positions for banks and consulting firms. Shockingly, my only success has been with two companies, Bloomberg and McKinsey, both of which I'm on my third round of interviews. Your podcast actually was a big help for talking points. That's awesome. I would love these roles, but I know they are highly competitive and would also like to get a few years of field experience under my belt to get some insight that you really can't get anywhere else. I agree. That's a good point. I'm not sure what I want to do down the line. I would love either working in operations or jumping into finance or the consulting side. I'm fascinated by the tech aspect of the industry as well and understand that the business is rapidly heading that way, though I lack significant coding experience. Sorry for the long-winded explanation, but from what I've heard on the podcast, it seems like y'all would have expected the opposite from my job hunt so far. From your perspective, it seems I should have been had a much more positive response for the field and engineering positions. Anyway, here are my questions. Given my petroleum engineering degree and background, what advice would you give to me in my search to find a solid engineering position or an EMP or even a service company? And then so let's stop it. There. Let's stop right there. And let's answer that part. So from my end, if I agree with you, no matter what you want to do with your future, you need some hands on petroleum engineering experience and or field experience. And I find it really hard to believe that if you hit any of the major service companies, the Slumberjays, Halliburton's, the Baker Hughes and search their job base for the location of Midland, Texas or the Permian. I find it really hard to believe that you can't get a job there. So Danny, do that first. Those companies are hiring like crazy. They can't get enough manpower down there. Don't be afraid to apply for a job that 
you know, a, like say a field tech job that normally somebody with a degree in petroleum engineering wouldn't apply for, you still get your hands dirty. And once one of the service companies realize what you're made of, they f- help you figure out your career path. So what you really need to do is just get in the door. So that'd be my first piece of advice to him right there, Jake, about getting actually in an oil and gas company or service company. Yeah. So I, I have conversations with a lot of people just like Danny all the time. They say, you know, what should I do? I'm applying, I'm applying, I'm applying. Okay. So if you're your only job is applying for jobs and you're on the job hunt. The w- number one thing you need to do in addition to applying is understand the industry that you're in. It's the oil and gas industry, right? It's still a good old boy network. So what do you got to do? You got a network. Yep. <laughs> you need to go out every night of the week or at least like three nights out of the week, find the networking event where it's like-minded individuals. It could be other graduates. It could be, you know, the people who are working at the ENPs and just try to provide as much value to people as possible. You know, don't go around saying, Hey, I need a job. I need a job. I need a job. Just find somewhere you can make yourself useful. You have value. Just look inside yourself and figure out what that is. But it's still, it's really who you know in this industry. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing still, but that's, that's the best advice that I could possibly get. Yeah. There's a lot of truth that. So when somebody like ExxonMobil opens up their website for one job requisition, they sometimes, Jake, get 70,000 applications the first hour. Yeah. And there's also <laughs> and algorithms so it, too. Like if you don't software requirements, like you never even yeah. get seen by a person, right? Yeah. It's all software that's holding your resume. So I agree with Jake too, that you actually need to get out and meet the people. There's a bunch of industry organizations that may or may not be worth your time. And I'm not self-promoting our happy hour, but I'm telling you, Danny, if you're in the Houston area, last Tuesday of the month, come check out our happy hour. There's a lot of people in there. They're in positions to hire or make recommendations. It's it's a, it's a starting to turn into a family, right? So if you come in there and you come a couple times, people see you, they'll open up to you. So yeah, Jake's right. You're networking is as important as you applying for stuff in some ways, maybe even more. All right. Is there a second part of the question? There's two other parts. He asked, what kind of role do you believe is most useful down the line? That's going to depend on what your end game is, Danny. You know, if you eventually want to move to the technology side and you've heard us say this a million times, get some big data analytics under your belt. Or, and there's actually starting to be respected data scientist programs out there that you can also do and maybe something else you want to look into. Then the last part of his question is... Let's see, I don't expect to get specific response to how long this is, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the questions. I figure it'd be helpful to hear the experience of a millennial. <laughs> and if you have any advice, don't forget, keep me in mind if y'all are hiring. So Danny, another thing you might want to do is just join our street team. We don't pay for that. It's a uh, volunteer work, but all we ask is for an hour worth of work a week and you get exposed to all the stuff we're doing. If you're here in Houston, you get to go to some of the conference we go to as press. So that may, might be another way if you get exposure. And oh yeah, and the last thing is, if you're here in the Houston area, join the Society of Petroleum Engineer SB, their Gulf Coast chapter, but join their young professionals group. That group has really done a good job of helping new students find places in not just the major operators, but the service companies and the smaller operators as well. And that kind of ties right into the next question from we have a Tiffany, who's a BA RPA developer at BP, and she wrote, how, do, how can I get involved in the OGGN street team? That's really si- simple, Tiffany. Reach out to Julie. We'll put a, a link in the show notes. So anybody wants to join the street team anywhere in the world, all we ask is for an hour's worth of work a week. You get cool shirts, cool swags. It's predominantly be around our social media, but there may be times we ask you to come you know, at one of our local happy hours and pitch in or take pictures or come with us to some all and gas conference and expo as part of our press team. We're growing that street team. We're up to, uh, I think, 100 and some odd people. We'd love to have more. So anybody else that wants to uh, help, uh, just reach out to Julie. She'll add you to the list. And we don't ask for a commitment. So even though we ask for an hour's worth of work a week, if you're busy or if your dog gets sick or you're busy in class or you got to travel for work, you don't have to do stuff. We don't hold that against you. We know how the, the real world is because we live in it as well. So yeah, Tiffany, I would love you to have joined the street team and come join us. 
And next question is from Ryan, who's an independent consultant. He writes, guys, I was wondering if you'd be interested in wanting to do a podcast with a CEO of an a PE back to EMP. I'd love to get some additional media coverage and give you guys an interesting discussion around the Powder River Basin. Please share your thoughts and look forward to your reply. So we get this a lot. So we yeah. actually, if you listen to the show for any length of time, you realize that we don't do interviews on Oil & Gas this week. But I'd be definitely interested in, in reaching out to Ryan and, and seeing if it's a fit for the Stars Podcast, for sure. Yeah, and so that's why I left this one in here. I get this a lot, and we appreciate y'all reaching out to us. We appreciate you offering us good conversation with interesting people. This show is not one for interviews, so we don't take interviews on the show. Every once in a in a million years, if there's something really cool that helps our industry and we want to talk to somebody about it, we might do it, but that's not something you can volunteer somebody from. Jake and I make that decision. Our other shows, however, often use do interviews. So Jake, I connected him with uh, Justin with the Onshore podcast, and they're and they're running that one down. So if you would like your company or if you have interesting people have interesting stories, you can reach out to us. You won't be on this show, but you might be a fit for our, one of our other, what are we up to, six shows, one of our other six shows. All right. Next question is another anonymous who was a facility engineer at Big Red. He goes, I love the shows, guys. Startups on shore, industry leaders, legal risks, HS&E. Although somebody needs to rework the intros for the HS&E show, not the Russell is the new host. That's funny. <laughs> we know. Um, we know. We're getting to it. <laughs> I've worked for a large oil field service company for 18 years, and I'm now ready to start my own thing. Both of you seem experienced in starting a new business from scratch. What are the two or three things you would tell me to watch out for and make sure I do? Keep up the awesome work. It's kind of hard to say. I think on, it really depends on what your business is going to be. I think on the OFS side, I'm much more of a fan and I kind of just, Colin's been preaching this for like the last forever, possibly looking at just acquiring an OFS company that is either, you know, it's somebody who's just kind of looking to get out of the business or they already have, you know, they've already had equipment. They possibly have a book of business. I've seen a lot of these come across my desk all the time. You can scoop them up for pretty good deals. I think it's a lot easier than just kind of starting at ground zero. But if you want to do that, I mean, that's, you know, it's a unique journey too. Yeah. So a couple of things, because I've done it wrong a bunch of times. And the reason I've, I am where I am is, is one of my skill sets is I'm able to see when I'm beating my head against the wall quicker than some others, maybe. Right. So I realize how to stop it and do something different. So the first thing is make sure whatever your business plan is or, or the product that our service you bring to market is actually viable. Just because you identified a problem because you work for Halliburton for what 18 years that you can fix, it doesn't mean the industry wants to solve it, nor does it mean they will pay for it. So instead of you coming with a good idea, the best thing to do is find a bunch of people that you don't know, right? Because your friends can't help but introduce a bias when you ask them a question, they're going to try to make you happy subconsciously and it's going to tweak what they tell you. Find people you don't know and say, okay, here's what I'm bringing to the market. Would you buy this? And if you would buy it, why? And how much will you pay for it? And if you ask a dozen people that, you'll start seeing a trend in that. Make sure that whatever you're bringing to market is viable. Number two, your team is everything. And I discovered that late in my business. In the beginning, it was just me making business decisions. And quite frankly, I sometimes make stupid business decisions. We have a team here, and the team as a whole has never made a bad business decision. Now, that does not mean the team agrees with everything. You know, Jake and I, Jake's part of that team. Jake and I don't always agree on stuff, right? The rest of the team doesn't always agree upon stuff. But having smart people that have a common goal to help you make decisions is, is worth a fortune. And I think finally is understand finance. You know, when I started Modal Point, which was, shoot, what, eight, nine, maybe even 10 years ago, I had a year's worth of cash because everybody said you needed six months worth of cash. And I said, well, I'll double that. I should be safe. And Jake, I ran out of cash. If it wasn't for the fact that my better half was working, Modal Point would have been bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And eventually I got my hands around that. But but the cost of doing things when you first come up with the idea doesn't seem like it's that big. And when you start paying people to edit video and you start having to buy plane tickets and everything, it adds up quickly. So make sure you understand the financial part of your business before you pull the, the plug on that. 
Yeah, I agree. And if you have any other questions, feel, re- feel free to reach out to either one of us directly. No, reach I, out to Jake. <laughs> <laughs> or reach out to me. It's kind of hard to give me just kind of blanket advice, but I think Mark really hit on the head as the things that kind of apply to everybody. Last question of the episode is from Jay Huggins, who is a knowledge analyst at Boston Consulting. He writes, you two are awesome. A perfect blend of genuine energy experience for thinking, humor, and ability to admit when you make mistakes. Hey, I just talked about that. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. We just, we love a willing guest this week. Here's my question. Do you really expect back the gig economy to come to the oil and gas industry? If so, when and where? I think you've kind of seen the gig economy in um, contractors and consultants in this space for a long time. And I think there's I think there's a few startups who are kind of trying to do something as far as like kind of bringing that digital into, into something that kind of replicates something like, like an Uber or a Lyft or something like that. But I think there's still a whole lot more potential. I mean, you've got a lot of people out there who have a whole lot of downtime and a whole lot of positions that are all over the US or all over the world where there's oil. So I think there's ways to tap into that to kind of leverage that to allow them to make a little bit more money on their own time as they, as they see fit. Now, what exactly would the task be? I don't know, but I think there's an opportunity there. Yeah, so just like Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and DoorDash, those gig economy business models could not exist until both the technology got cheap enough and existed so it could work for their business and people accepted the change in culture. So if you would have told me, actually, I'm I'm a perfect example. I'm 53 years old. If you went back, if you had a time machine, go back to talk to my parents when they were seven or eight, when I was seven or eight or nine or 10 years old and said, look, I want your son to use an app to call a stranger in a car to come move him somewhere, <laughs> and and then he pays them on the phone. My parents would have said that's insane, right? You don't get in a car with a stranger. So it wasn't until the cultural change and the technology got to the point where we actually had smartphones and apps that something like Uber could exist. I think it's the same thing for the oil and gas industry. We need a couple things to happen. For us to have a gig economy, we need standardization on everything so that, you know, the the whatever the process improvement engineer for whatever pipeline company, the way they do it in pipeline company X is exactly the same way, exactly the same valves, exactly the same pipe in company Z. At that point, we can have a gig economy because he's working with the same stuff regardless of company. Same way standardization of things like rigs and crew boats and plets and manifolds and trees. Once we get that standardization, which dro- which which in itself will drive down costs, increase efficiencies, then you can have more of a gig economy laid across that. And I think I think it's going to happen. I think, like Jake said, I think it's already starting to happen. I think that uh, change is going to be accelerated. And I think it's going to be accelerated because we're facing a talent shortage of epic proportions. And that's going to happen in the next 10 years. So I would not be surprised that in the next decade, you see a lot of the gig economy in oil and gas. So, you know, there's my two cents around that. I do think it's in- interesting, Jake, that he's a knowledge analyst. I'm not quite sure what that means, but but Boston Consulting is one of the big, I don't know, four or five consulting companies. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jay Huggins, thanks for reaching out. And if, and if you want to reach back out to me and, and tell me what a knowledge analyst, analyst actually does, I'd love to learn. All right, guys, that wraps up all of the questions for this month's episode of First Friday Q&A. So if you have any questions for next month's episode, please write in. I will be glad to hopefully answer those with some insightful answers. Once again, don't try to stump us with technical information because most likely we're kind of limited on what we can talk about. But Anyways, let's get on it's the rest exciting of the show. Get part of a show, Jay. <laughs> Jake, it's a very exciting part of the show. Finally, we've gotten to the giveaway. So our sponsor is IBM. It's taken us a while to get this together. Our apologies to our audience. It's just when you work with a company as large as IBM and we've been as busy as we are, we want to really make sure we treat our audience to something well. It took us a while to get here. So our giveaway, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, go sign up for it. You get a chance to win a T-shirt. Now, this is not any T-shirt. Uh, we spec this ourselves. This is a very high-quality T-shirt. It's cut for both men and women. 
women. So there's both a men and a women's model. We have a patented drawing of a pump jack that's on the front with IBM's logo on one sleeve and OGGN's logo on the other sleeve. And this is an instant collector's item. No, I'm not shooting our own horn. Literally, every shirt has a unique serial number, which makes it an instant collector's item. And when you win, it comes inside an official OGGN insulated tumbler for your drinks of adult drinks of pleasure. Now, what's interesting about these unique serial numbers is as the year goes on, Jake and I will use those numbers to give away cool stuff. For instance, you may hear Jake say, hey, whoever has shirt number 1127, you get an all-expense trade. A paid trip to come record a podcast with me and Jake at the IBM Think Conference in San Francisco in 2020. I mean, that'd be a hell of a prize. And we're working on a bunch of stuff like that. So go sign up quickly. Uh, the link's in the show notes. If you're watching this on mobile, just swipe upper left, go click on the giveaway link, sign up for the really cool t-shirt. We'll give away one a week and we're going to continue that for the rest of this year. And our weekly rig count for the week brought to you by Drilling Info is 1,049. Jake, did you just look that up? I did. Okay. I just want to make sure it was the old number from last week because I don't remember what it was from last week. So Jake has to get out of here. Jake, go uh, take care of family stuff. I'm going to finish with the show. Events on deck. We have our launch party for the Permian Perspective podcast. And it's also our first Midland Monthly Happy Hour. So we got a new show that we're launching, which is Permian Perspective. It's going to be April 23rd. And we're launching the show live from the first annual monthly Midland Happy Hour. So Midland, Texas, right smack in the in the, the Permian. We're going to have our monthly happy hour just like we have here in Houston. So we got a link. It's at the Midland Beer Garden. This first happy hour is actually going to be free. So not only do you get you get to get in for free but you also get to watch the grand launch of the permanent perspective podcast tell all your friends if you're a service company or an operator that operates in the permian and you want exposure to to the oil and gas companies that are out there reach out to julie and talk about sponsoring a podcast i think it's only 750 which is a little bit more than our houston happy hour but we're in midland but it's a great way if you get local exposure to people that live and work in the permian and then we have an oil and gas a global network super happy hour we do this every month it's always the last tuesday next one's tuesday april there's here in Houston. It's a great time. We start live streaming it. We have, you know, if you have an interest in sponsoring that, it's dirt cheap. I think it's 500 bucks to sponsor it. Also reach out to Julie. We have the Professional Petroleum Data Expo. That's April 9th and 10th. We're bringing a couple of podcasts there. I'm actually speaking myself. Those links are in the show notes. And then Jake and I will be speaking and doing a live podcast from the Independent Petroleum Association of New Mexico. So IPANM. It's July 24th, July 26th, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like I said, we're delivering a keynote and a podcast. That's a black you need to come check that out if you're in that part of the country. And then if you want to learn about these events and more, get my monthly oil and gas, oil and gas events newsletter for free. There's a link in the show notes. We take all the oil and gas events, put them in your inbox. I will tell you a secret. The next one that goes out in May will have free OTC passes. The one that just went out in April has free OTC passes. So if you're on that newsletter list, read where it says OTC, and you can score yourself and your friends some passes. And if you don't have it, sign up. And the next one that goes out in May, you can also score passes. But hurry, because OTC is the first week of May. And then if you want Jake and I to come to your oil and gas event, your sales and marketing kickoff, whatever, let us know. We'd love to either come out there and speak, deliver a keynote, bring the podcast, or all of the above. Jake talked about the first Friday Q&A. Uh, ask us a question. If we use your question, we'll give a big shout out in the air. And if you go to our website, go ahead and give us your email address. We're going to use that for something in the future. Promise never to spam you. That's allinggasthisweek.com. And then finally, join our LinkedIn group. It's growing. Microsoft's doing a really good job of removing spam. It's the sister for this show and all the rest of the shows. Jake, I had to leave, go take care of family stuff. So it's time for us to get off the air. So folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.